This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is the second episode in our series on the two most popular works by the Greek playwright Sophocles. Last week, we traveled back the couple of thousand years and across the ocean to Greece and tried to understand a little bit about the culture and customs that surrounded Greek theater. We discussed the occasion for the plays, the setup of the amphitheaters, the organization of the drama, and some of the things that we can expect to see in every Greek play. Things like masks, an orchestra, a chorus, and a scheme. We also told the story of Oedipus, the myth itself, a story that would be familiar to everyone watching the play. We discussed the fact that nobody went to the theater to get a surprise or to see an unexpected plot twist. The fun was in the retelling of the familiar story. How is Sophocles going to show this or that and listen and enjoy the irony of the things the characters say and do? That is exactly correct. And today we are going to go through much of the story. As we learned last week, Greek plays have an organizational structure that's kind of easy to follow once you understand what you're getting into. There's the prologue, then there's a choral ode, then there's an episode, then there's a choral ode, then there's an episode, then there's a choral ode, all the way to the end. And in this play, there are five episodes, so there are five choral odes. So we're going to take it uh, today all the way up to the third one, the third paradox, or the third choral ode. All right, so... Uh, today we get into the story, which I know we need to do. There's one more thing we really need to nail down, and that is this idea of what is a tragedy. Um, it's a very Greek idea. Aristotle, who tells us everything we need to know and with whom we dare not argue, defines tragedy as, and I quote, an imitation of an action of high importance, complete and of some amplitude, in language enhanced by distinct and varying beauties, acted, not narrated, by means of pity and fear, affecting its purgation of these emotions. And I know everybody's 
already checked their phone and thought about their next meal before I finished reading it. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Very lofty uh, language. I know. And let me add one more fun fact. Uh, Aristotle did not try to prescribe to playwrights how to write a play. He's not like saying, okay, these are the things you have to have. What he did was he went to enough of these things, he watched them, and he was trying to make observations and identify what exactly was going on. What he wanted to do, and this is, you know, what Aristotle does. He wants to think deeply. And he was thinking deeply, in this case, about theater and trying to understand it and its appeal. So let me try to put it, the concept of tragedy in a more understandable way. What, what it is, is it involves a person of high estate, a noble person, a person that's better than the person that's watching the play. So he is better, higher than us. He is more powerful, maybe more noble. He has better character. If you don't admire him, then you can't feel bad or sad when bad or sad things happen. For him or her, which will be the case in the next play, for the tragic, for the hero to be tragic, they must fall. And they have to experience terrible suffering. And usually it's more than they deserved. So you're supposed to have this reaction. And it's going to be kind of like, well, I, I can see how what they did was bad. But really, come on. Did this have to happen? Did this have to be what they experienced because of that? And in Greek tragedy, it's always going to be because of something inside the protagonist himself. Now, they use this word called harmatia, uh, which in a lot of dramatic circles, you'll hear it translated as a tragic fall, but it's also a Bible word. In the Bible, the word harmatia means sin in the Greek New Testament. And if you look at sin and you look at tragic fall and you look at harmatia, they translate to mean this, they missed the mark. What does that mean? They just didn't get it right. It's not that they're a bad fellow. Sometimes it's not even his or her fault. Some, a lot of times it's pride or hubris, as they call it, but pride can be a good thing sometimes as well as a bad thing. And I would argue in Oedipus, really defining how that exactly pride can get you into trouble maybe the whole point of the play. But at the end of the day, what almost everyone can agree with about this play is that there are some things in Oedipus's character that aren't that awesome, that they stand out as problematic. Uh, and the first and the foremost, I think, and the most obvious, really, especially in the beginning, is the fact that Oedipus has a problem of being too rash or impulsive, you might say. <laughs> and I'm going to guess to a deep thinker like Aristotle, being rash and impulsive is the biggest insult imaginable. <laughs> the Greeks didn't like it well. <laughs> they did not. Well, what I find pretty interesting about the confusing concept of harmatia, and I think hopefully I said that correctly, is that it forces the hero to be responsible. And I see responsibility to be a big deal with the Greeks you can be a hero if you have a flaw, but you can't be a hero if you're not responsible or take responsibility both in glory as well as in doom. They seem to admire that in all of its forms, and I kind of really like that. It's really certainly not a modern idea. To the Greeks, it appears to me that even if there was information you didn't know, like you didn't know you were married to your mother for 20 plus years, it didn't matter. The gods still held you accountable for that. It was your job to know, and if you don't, 
you suffer regardless. Yeah, I see that too. And that's why we can have sympathy for someone who has missed the mark or fallen short or has a terrible flaw. We can see that it could have been me. We've all missed the mark. We've all sinned, so to speak. We've all done things. Uh, and these have, and these things that we've done, the places in our lives where we've missed the mark, makes us vulnerable to the power of fate. So the final idea in Aristotle's definition uh, was that idea of carth- catharsis. So, Gary, catharsis—that's a psych term. Uh, give it a brief synopsis of what that is supposed to mean. From the psychological perspective? I guess. Okay. Was there another? <laughs> oh, well, you know, the Greeks can have yeah, slightly different interpretations of how they use it. But catharsis is a term that we understand is this idea of it's a really powerful emotional release. And, and after you release these powerfully strong emotions, then you gain some kind of insight into your character, and it, which brings about change. It's the idea that in some psychological way, we can experience an emotional relief from watching the downfall of someone and that somehow makes us feel better about ourselves and our lives. Life is difficult for everyone and we all make mistakes. And when we see great people or heroes fall, perhaps it gives us some sort of feeling like, well, if it could happen to him, maybe I shouldn't feel so bad about my lot. Or maybe it's the idea that we can actually feel and relate. And it is in the feeling of deep emotions that our soul connects with other people. We experience the buildup of the anxiety of the hero, but then we can feel relief that it's not us. Uh, Aristotle believed that catharsis relieves us of pity and fear and somehow provides relief in our own lives from anxiety, which I think is a very interesting thought. In other words, we feel better leaving the movie than when we went into the movie, whether we can explain why or not. Which to me sounds very Freudian, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> but yet connects to this play. Very much so, yes. <laughs> well, there's more, uh, oh, a couple more things to talk about tragedy. Uh, there's reversals and recognitions, and I do want us to get into that. that but that's not going to happen for Oedipus until next week. So... For the moment, uh, our takeaway from all this, if, if we can reduce it down to just a few sentences, I think we can say this. We can admire a great hero, but we can also learn from him or her. And in some way, maybe we can avoid the horrific error in judgment, missing the mark uh, that they made. Uh, because we too, just like they are, are good people, even if we too sometimes miss the mark. And even though we may not be as grand as they are, we can improve on who maybe we are in our own lives and hopefully not make the mistakes they make and experience their horrible fate. Was that what the average Greek play attender was supposed to come away with? I mean, I guess. I'm just reading this stuff from 2,000 years ago. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But... They didn't blog back then, really, as much as what the average play guy thought. But True. There were not a lot of critics uh, during those time periods. <laughs> but let's get into our story. The chorus is going to come out. Oedipus addresses the chorus and basically asks what the problem is. A priest responds with this very famous simile. The city is like a ship rolling dangerously. Basically, everyone is dying. There's a horrible plague, and they only you can save us, Superman. Or I mean, Oedipus. Uh, he's helped them before. They feel like the gods are with him, and he's going to say this: 
You are a man of experience, the kind whose plans result in effective action. You saved us once, save us again. And of course, Oedipus responds, and we're going to get into our first choral ode, and he's going to say, I'm on it. And in some ways, he accepts glory as if he were almost a god himself, maybe dangerous. But honestly, he's not on it. Uh, By on it, he means this. In my ceaseless reflection, I have followed many paths of thought, and he's going to send his brother-in-law to the oracle to see what Apollo has to say about this. And that is not exactly problem-solving action. In fact, I hate it if I have to call up like one of those problem hotlines, and then the person says, "Uh, I'm going to get right on that. I'm going to send an email up to chain and see what they can do for you. And so, you know, Creon is just kind of going up to chain to see what the oracle has to say. Now, Gary, what is the oracle? Well, first let me tell you where they are. Thebes was a large city during the days of ancient Greece. It was an important city. It was located in central Greece. It's 89 kilometers from the oracle and 93 kilometers from Athens. So basically, it's halfway between Athens and Delphi. Delphi is on the north side of the main island of Greece. Which we've been to. That was fun. Yes. Quite a haul. (laughs) Actually uh, climbed up the mountainside to the Oracle of Delphi that they're actually talking about right here. And what's interesting is that if you uh, were seeking your fate or your future, you would go to the Oracle. You would submit your questions about your fate and your future. Um, then there were the uh, the young women inside the oracle, and they were the ones that would give the prophecy. And we found out on our trip there that basically the temple was built on top of a natural gas leak. And these young girls were inside the uh, oracle, usually high on fumes, and they would give the prophecy. And many times the prophecy would be nonsensical. So it would be up to the scribe who was present to write down all that the... Um, the girls said inside the temple, and then it would be up to the scribe to interpret the prophecy to the fortune seeker. Well, Creon goes up there, he gets his message from the Oracle of Apollo, and he's going to come back from the Oracle in our first episode. And you know, one of the things I remember on a side note, it's pretty hot. But anyway, maybe he wasn't traveling in the summer. But <laughs> but let me point out, uh, getting back to this story, uh, we're in the first episode, and each one of these episodes is going to be this tightly constructed cause-effect chain. So you're going to see, you know, this happened because of this in each one of these little episodes. Most of the bad stuff that led to that, that was an effect of other bad stuff that had already happened before the play even starts, if that makes any sense. Anyway... Uh, he's gone to this oracle and he's found out some information and he basically wants to have a private conversation. And Oedipus, in his rash, typical self, is going to say, whatever you have to say to me, you can say in front of my 5,000 best, closest friends or whoever many people are out there in the front of the town. Uh, And then we, of course, are going to see our first example of verbal and dramatic irony because we know you probably shouldn't hear this in front of everyone but he doesn't uh creon is going to say a series of things some are true and some are not true because not even creon knows but we do we're the audience creon thinks he's bringing good news we know it's bad news 
He thinks Laos was killed by a band of robbers. We know it was only one guy. And Oedipus and his rashness is going to say a bunch of ironic things. So they find out that they're going to have this plague, or they have this plague, because Laos was killed. And he's going to say, I shall rid us of this pollution, not for the sake of a distant relative, but for my own sake, which is not true. He also says, so acting on behalf of Laos, I benefit myself too, which we know, again, is not true. So in the first choral ode, we find out that things are really, really bad in Thebes. Everyone's sad and devastated. The city truly is dying, and they need a god to help them. Um, It's full of irony from top to bottom. And this kind of is what is delightful for the audience because they're watching this the whole time thinking, we know, we know. Uh, The very first thing that we see is Oedipus coming out and saying things like, I speak as one who has no connection with this affair nor with this murder. And we know that that is absolutely not true. And then, of course, the I think some of the most famous lines uh, from this play, he says this, I call down a curse on him, whether that unknown figure be one man or one of many. May he drag out an evil death in life and misery. And further, I pronounce a curse on myself if the murderer should, with my knowledge, share my house. In that case, may I be subject to all the curses I have just called down on these people here. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but that's exponential cursing. I don't know what happens <laughs> when you put a curse on top of a curse on top of a curse yeah, on top. And then you involve the whole crowd. Uh, and then it turns out that you just cursed yourself all those exponentially long ways. Hmm. Well, Shakespeare might say, me dost think thou protest too much. <laughs> well, he says this. I fight for him as if he were my own father. And, of course, everyone's going to say in their head, He is! He uh, is! Right. The audience gets great joy out of knowing the story while the characters are ignorant. That's the deal. So is rashness his tragic flaw? Well, it's definitely part of it. It's certainly not doing him any favors. It's actually how he got into this mess to begin with. I mean, who really does go around killing random men on the highway? Who runs away from home because they think they're going to marry their mother? There's a lot to think about thematically up to this point. And for the Greeks, it really is worth thinking about. One question that people always ask when it comes to the Greeks, and I don't really know that I know the answer. Uh, I didn't know the answer to this when I watched the movie The Matrix, which was the first time I ever saw an oracle, by the way. Uh, The question that people ask is, what is the role of the oracle? The gods in Greek mythology really don't have power to create people's fates, which is interesting because you think of, in a Western interpretation of God, we think of a sovereign God as controlling the world, but that's not the Greek understanding of gods. They don't control fate. Uh, They can, uh, in Greek mythology, uh, that's above even their pay grade, but they can know your fate. Uh, They can manipulate people, and they can trick people, and they often do. But ultimately, humans are responsible for whatever the humans do, and they're accountable for this. And often, I think, at least I think we're given the impression that these prophecies seem really unfair. But in a Greek sense, and this is kind of of those paradoxes, are they they just uh, challenges? Um, 
In reality, the oracle really doesn't do anything. It's what people do that create the craziness. And in some sense, some of the stuff is something that you really want to think through or you may not want to think through it. Does Oedipus believe in oracles? Because if he did, why did he marry an older woman? He knew the oracle. That seems kind of risky. Why did he kill a man around his dad's age? He knew about that oracle too, or that prophecy too. So why did he do it? Well, isn't the short answer because he wanted to? That's exactly right. He did it because he wanted to. He got angry, so he killed a guy. He wanted to be the king of Thebes, so he married that woman. Whatever it was. But he's not the only one who isn't paying attention to the oracles or if they believe them are making rash decisions. Why did Jocasta marry a guy that much younger? She knew the oracle. Why did she have kids? The oracle told her that would happen. And this is where the Greeks seem smarter to me than we are. They let all these kinds of crazy questions just swirl around in your mind and then they don't answer them. They want you to think about them, and then you deal with it. (laughs) Thank you. I know. And this brings us back to the play, because uh, with these questions whirling around in our mind, we shall meet the man who knows or sees Tiresias. Oh, yes. The blind prophet, and yet ironically the one who can see. And Oedipus is horribly rude to him. He really is. And let me say that seeing and blindness is going to be a motif. We see it all the time from beginning to the end in this play. And of course, there's all kinds of irony about the fact that the blind guy is the only one who can see. I can see uh, blindness or sight being a motif just simply by the way that you, the audience always knows what's going on. In yeah, the we don't. see and they don't. Yeah, um, uh, It's also ironic that Tiresias doesn't want to tell Oedipus anything. It seems he's always known what the deal was with Oedipus and Jocasta. He's always known one day their world would come crashing down. And ironically, it was his compassion that has kept Oedipus's world together up to this point. But again, Oedipus doesn't know. Tiresias says he's not telling, and this makes Oedipus mad. You could say that the words that come out of his mouth are, again, rash. He does have that problem can definitely say that. And Tiresias brings up this really great line, and it's something to think about. He says this, Wisdom is a dreadful thing when it brings no profit to its possessor. And here again is another existential question that the Greeks are throwing out, and they're not going to answer. To know or not to know your own destiny, which is better? I'm not going to answer that. (laughs) I find it very interesting that if you go to modern plays, let's say, for instance, you go see cats. Oh, dear. They're not asking these questions. (laughs) They might be. I can't understand that play. (laughs) Well, these kind of questions would make audience goers uh, tired from contemplating all of them. But anyway, if you don't know, then you can't do anything about it. You're not responsible, except that's not true. Life will hold you responsible for what you do and what you don't know. If you rashly dive headfirst into a lake that's not too deep and break your neck, not knowing will not keep you from getting paralyzed. That's true. But then again, sometimes you don't want to know that you're going to get cancer. So who knows? And that seems uh, to be the question here, although Oedipus has kind of jumped headfirst into a lake and 
didn't look first. He clearly has brought curses on Thebes, uh, and he's clearly brought curses on himself, and Tiresias knows it. But Oedipus gets really hateful to Tiresias, and he actually goes so far as to accuse this blind old man of murder. (laughs) To which Tiresias is going to fire right back and says, okay, if you really want to know, let me quote him. From now on, do not presume to speak to me or to any of these people. You are the murderer. You are the unholy defilement of this land. He says it a couple times. I say that you are the murderer you are searching for. So let him have it. Exactly. And of course, with each line, everyone in the amphitheater is going to go, I know, I know. You tell him, you tell him. Especially, I guess, you know, I don't know how the acting would be, but... You know, when someone yells at each other, you know, that does intensify the drama, at least for me. And, of course, Oedipus responds by bragging on himself. He says, I stopped the Sphinx. I answered the riddle with my own intelligence. The birds had nothing to do with it, and now you try to drive me out? You think you will stand beside Creon's throne? Oh, yes, and there he brings Creon into it. Uh, Tiresias brings up the scene motif again. He's going to say this. Without knowing it, you are the enemy of your own flesh and blood, the dead below and the living here above, the double-edged curse of your mother and father. You see straight now, but then you will see darkness. You will scream aloud on that day. He's going to make this prediction that everyone in the audience knows it's going to be true. And he's going to say this. Uh, I'm going. I'm going to leave here. But first, I will say what I came here to say. I have no fear of you. You cannot destroy me. Listen to me now. The man you are trying to find with your threatening proclamations, the murder of Laius, that man is here in Thebes. He is apparently an immigrant of foreign birth, but he will be revealed as being a native-born Theban. He will take no pleasure in that revelation. Blind instead of seeing, beggar instead of rich, he will make his way to foreign soil, feeling his way with a stick. He will be revealed as brother and father of the children with whom he now lives, the son and husband of the woman who gave him birth, the murderer and marriage partner of his father. Go think this out, and if you find that I am wrong, then say that I have no skill in prophecy. And of course, everyone in the audience is going to say, there's just nothing worse. (laughs) That would be the worst. <laughs> well, Oedipus insults both Creon and Tiresias, accusing his brother-in-law of plotting against him. He is so rude that the chorus leader interjects with our second choral ode. Well, true, and, and they're totally confused. The audience, or not the audience, the chorus, no one knows why you would want to take down Oedipus. Why would Tiresias go after Oedipus like that? What does Oedipus have to do with the murder of Laius some 20 years ago? Oedipus is a great guy. Well, they believe the oracle, but they can't imagine Oedipus being who Tiresias is saying. The wise prophet's words have brought me terror and confusion. I cannot agree with him nor speak against him. That's true. And in the second uh, episode, Creon's going to come in. And of course, Oedipus just goes off on him, too. Well, you know, Creon tries to logically explain that there is no good reason for him to be king. He likes the no responsibility, rich kid life he's living, and so he's not a threat. 
what would he gain by being king? It would just be more work. True. And let me point out that the chorus leader at least twice tries to tell Oedipus to stop being rash. He flat out says, quick decisions are not the safest. See, they have these little wise tidbits Mm -hmm. sprinkled throughout the play. And that's another little life lesson for the audience. And it is true, I have to admit, I have a tendency in my own life to to jump the gun and be a bit rash on occasion. And I've said a few things in anger or written emails that I probably should have put in the draft box for a day or two. As I've gotten older, I've tried to do that more. (laughs) Yes. Oedipus Christie. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, I think that's true of a lot of people. And the chorus leader does try to bring things to a calmness, like the way an email left in the inbox might do. This sort of talk is not what we need. What we must think of is how to solve the problem set by the god Oracle. And Jocasta will kind of say a similar thing now that she walks in, but Oedipus for the moment doesn't seem to listen to her either. He throws out Creon. Oh, and another small detail, speaking of rashness, apparently, if I'm not wrong, Oedipus has been doing this in front of the entire town, throwing these tantrums. <laughs> You're not wrong. And the chorus is going to say, Jocasta, get him inside. This is bad. Of course, she does get him inside and finally gets the truth out of him. She hears the story about the accusations of Oedipus killing Laius, the prophet, and she hears about the prophecies. And, of course, she's going to say, What? You're worried about an old prophecy? Don't worry about those. And then she's going to say this. Uh, Rid your mind of fear. Listen to me. I can teach you something. There is no human being born that is endowed with prophetic power, and I can prove it to you in a few words. A prophecy came to Laius once, and I, I won't say from Apollo himself, but from his priests. It said that Laius was fated to die by the hand of a son, a son to be born to him and to me. Well, Laius, so the story goes, was killed by foreign robbers at a place where three highways meet. As for the son... Three days after his birth, Laius fastened his ankles together and had him cast away on the pathless mountains. So in this case, Apollo did not make the son kill his father Laius or Laius die by his own son's hands as he had feared. Yet these were the definite statements of the prophetic voices. Don't pay any attention to prophecies. If God seeks or needs anything, he will easily make it clear to us himself. Hmm. And again, we have more irony because just as Oedipus hears this story, he begins to get concerned that Tiresias may be right. And the audience gets to watch him slowly begin to guess at what we already know to be true. There is something enjoyable about watching that sort of thing. I believe the word is schadenfreude. (laughs) Well, indeed. And this conversation brings us to another interesting thematic development in this play. And it's on this last idea that I think we can conclude for the day. It's the idea of speaking or not speaking. You have to ask yourself these questions. Why didn't Polybus or Merope ever tell Oedipus the truth about who they were, that they weren't really his parents? Why did Jocasta and Oedipus, after all these years, never talk about her history, his history? You have to remember, their kids are adults, And they've never asked. They've never discussed these things. Was it fear? Was it overconfidence that it doesn't matter? Was it embarrassment? I mean, no one wants to say, yeah, I left my kid out to die or I killed somebody. But 
What is the value of full disclosure? Is it better to tell things that we're embarrassed of or ashamed of or even afraid of, even if we don't want to? Most people would say, I'm just going to keep some things to myself. But is that our ego talking? Is that a tragic flaw? Sadly, Jocasta and Oedipus, they're going to talk, but it's a bit late. (laughs) Jocasta comes in with Oedipus going off on Creon, wanting to kill him. Creon's trying to explain that there is zero logical reason for him to kill Oedipus. He's not lying about what the oracle says. Uh, And ironically, in Jocasta's attempt to comfort Oedipus, she's actually going to condemn him. Uh, She says, you're worried about this oracle. Don't worry about it. I was told I'd marry my son and my son would kill my husband. So much for that. But when she says where her husband was killed and when she brings up the fact about these ankle pins, uh, things are going to start to awaken inside of Oedipus that maybe tell a different story. And, you know, then the details start coming out and it's disturbing. And to his credit, instead of running from the truth, Oedipus actually runs to it. Uh, But is it in his best interest to know his future? He wants to track down the old shepherd who would know. Oedipus does ask Jocasta, where's the old shepherd? And she said, as soon as he saw you come into town, he took off, which, of course, the audience all knows we know why. He's the witness. He's the witness. <laughs> He's grossed out. <laughs> yes. No one wants to tell that story. Sir, let me tell you what that what you just did. <laughs> mm, well, and, and finally, Oedipus tells Jocasta a story he should have told her perhaps before they got married. One of those full disclosure things and maybe a Greek life lesson, boys and girls. If you have a secret like, I killed a dude on the way to our first date. Lay it out before you get married. Uh, If it should crash and burn, earlier is better than later. It's just tips to avoid tragedy. (laughs) But, of course, Greek audience members would have all sat through this play and said, I can think of ten ways we could have headed off this disaster, (laughs) and they would have problem-solved it. Well, remember, Oedipus wants, uh, if he wants to do anything, he wants us to teach us. How can we be a little bit better at problem-solving than Oedipus? What is wrong with this guy? Well, obviously, he's rash. Obviously, he acts without thinking. Obviously, he accuses without thinking. He talks without thinking. Was his life fated to be what it is? Uh, Well, maybe it is. But in the same way, is my life fated to be what it is because the places that I have missed the mark? Do I have control? To what extent can I see And these are our questions. Well, sight is a motif. And Tiresias can't see, but he can. Oedipus can see, but he can't. I don't want to be either one of those two guys. And we can see everything. There's the irony. Uh, Well, those are the big ideas that we've looked at and started to explore this week. We'll pick up next week, continuing on those ideas and pick up a little bit more. We're going to talk about recognition and reversal. And of course, everyone's favorite Greek idea, hubris. Yes. <laughs> and we'll have a drop in visit from Sigmund Freud. Oh, that'll be fun. We'll discuss some of the psychological concepts related to this. Anyway, thanks for being with us today. We always like to encourage you to tell your friends about us. Uh, hey, have a podcast listening party. Invite everybody. Anyway, share with your friends. Follow us on our Facebook page. Follow us on our Instagram page. 
You can check out all the latest information on our HowToLoveLivePodcast.com page. All kinds of information there for you. Thanks again for being with us. Peace out.